You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship. South Point Fellowship exists to equip the family of God for the mission of God. For more information, please visit spfchurch.org. I don't watch uh, a ton of basketball, but I do watch the NBA playoffs, and so uh, we were watching that last night, but we, I mean, I was watching that, and my wife was watching something else on her phone. Uh, and so as I was watching, though, you notice how they, the camera goes to the sidelines during the timeouts, and sometimes you can actually hear what the coaches are saying to their players, players who are the best in the world, I mean, the best basketball players on the planet, and their coaches who are some of the best in the world. If you notice, what, not what they're telling, they're not telling them something crazy. It's not like, ooh, let me write down some tips from these expert coaches that I've never heard so I can tell my 10-year-old how to shoot better free throws or how to drive to the basket. Here's what the coaches are telling them. They're saying, when a shot goes up, make sure you're boxing out. I've, I've told my 10-year-old that before. Um, when, when, when you're on offense, make sure uh, you're running through the lane. It's like, yeah. I've told my team, make sure you keep moving. Make sure the motion is there. Use bounce passes. All of these things are fundamentals of the game. If you ever played basketball, the coaches, 90% of what they're saying to their players, the best coaches, the best players, 90% of what they are saying is if you were coaching little kids basketball, you'd be saying the exact same thing. The reason for that is because we often forget about the fundamentals of sports. Same is true in other areas of life. Last night we were walking into Cherryberry, uh, and I'll pick up my 10-year-old again. He loves it when I do that. Uh, we're about to walk across the little street right there, you know, in front of Ingalls, and uh, he just decides to start walking out from the curb. And I said, whoa, bro, you got to watch out for cars. There's a car coming right there. Now, I've been telling him that for the past eight years of his life. But sometimes we just forget the fundamentals, right? We were at somebody's house Friday night, and uh, the husband went to go make some brownies. They're in the uh, McDonough congregation, so I can talk about them. Uh, so next week I'll talk about somebody here. But uh, the, the guy, he goes, and the kitchen is right there kind of with the dining room. It's an old-style home. And right before he goes to put the brownies into the pan, uh, he forgets to spray the pan. So he gets this delicious brownie batter. He puts it in. All of a sudden his wife, she says, did you spray the pan? He said, oh, I forgot. You ever do that? I asked Shana last night. I said, what are some, as we're sitting there, as I'm sitting there watching basketball, I said, what are some fundamentals like around? She was like, don't pick your nose. <laughs> Make sure you wash your hands, you know, after you go to the bathroom. Like, these are the things that we just constantly tell our kids. It's not... Hey, every time you go to the bathroom, make sure you wash your hands. Boom, done for the rest of my life. Never going to struggle with that again. You just have to keep telling them over and over. And some of y'all need to hear that too who are adults. You're like, you know, these studies come out. It's like 60% of people of guys don't wash. It's like, bro, you got to wash, wash your hands. We just came out of a, you know, year-long pandemic. Like, wash your hands. you got to do these things. These are fundamental parts of being alive, especially in America when we have the opportunity of washing our hands in every single restroom almost but these fundamentals are there. She said, one of the fundamentals, my wife said, whenever you're making a cake, maybe some of y'all didn't know this, so maybe this will improve some of your cooking. Uh, when you're making a cake or baking something, make sure you add the eggs last. Because that way they don't get overbeaten. And I was like, that's genius. That makes sense. She's like, yeah, but that's, that's really simple. And I'm like, maybe not for some people, but for some folks, it's fundamental. 
So when we look at the Psalms, what I want us to see is the Psalms are oftentimes, it's nothing special. You read through the Psalms, it's like, man, I'm looking for something just like over the top or some deep knowledge or something. Like, what, how are you going to wow us today by looking at this, this one Psalm? It's like, we may not, it may just be fundamentals. Be reminded of who God is. If we get nothing else, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 113 this morning. That's the only Psalm we're going to look at. If you get nothing else out of the psalm, if you get nothing else out of this entire series, here's what I want you to see. That the psalms invite us to connect with our transcendent God. You're like, okay, hold on one second. That, the word transcendent, that's like a $3 you know, word. we got to talk about that. Transcendent is it's above everything here that you've experienced. Maybe sometimes you've had a transcendent experience. Uh, I've, I've traveled a decent bit of my life. I've been to Alaska, and I've walked on enormous, enormous glaciers, where when you look in any direction, all you see is a huge glacier. In the distance, you see mountains. Over here, you see, uh, you see the beach, and it's just, it's wild. And you watch the sun dip behind the mountains, and then it comes right back up, and it's daylight 24 hours a day. We were there for about 10 weeks. It was daylight almost the entire time. But when you're standing there looking at this huge glacier, like, man, this is awe-inspiring as you're driving through these giant snow-capped mountains. We were in Costa Rica a few years ago, and I remember uh, we were not hang gliding. We were doing the zip line, and we were, we were about a mile up in the air, and the zip line went for about a, a mile and a half on this singular run. And we did about 17 of those through the course of this. But I remember standing on the edge of a tree, and I look out, and you can see what looks like all of Central America because you're so high. And you're like... All right, I put my faith both in God and in this cable, you know, that some guys put up. I hope they're getting paid a lot of money. And so you're sitting on this tree, and it's real wobbly. But I remember thinking, like, this is just a once-in-a-lifetime transcendent experience. Maybe you've had that with God in some moment of your life. I would imagine for a lot of us, maybe those events don't happen quite enough. That's why we're going through the Psalms. It's so that we can see this is who God is. And if we're not wowed and encouraged and inspired by the Psalms, I mean, you may be looking for something else other than what God says. This is not the Psalms and the Scriptures, but the Psalms in particular are not propositional truth. It's experiential truth. And as we look at the Psalms, our goal is that you would experience God, not just to hear about God, but to hear the voice of God and encounter Him. The Shema in Deuteronomy and Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind. Jesus added strength in there, right? We would say it this way at South Point, that we want you to love the Lord your God with your head, your heart, and your hands. And I would say as a church, and this is really good, uh, we love the Lord really well with our heads. We, we love good theology. We love good information about God. Those things are really good to us. We enjoy reading books. We enjoy knowledge. And I would say, by and large, we do a pretty good job of loving God with our hands. Uh, especially coming out of this series on the spiritual gifts, which if you haven't listened to that, you can listen to that online. Watch it online. Listen to the podcast. I would encourage you to do that. But we love the Lord well with our hands. We enjoy serving one another. Even yesterday, I was getting text about Scott and Laura Beth. Uh, and it's like, how can we help them tangibly? Can we send them money? Yes, Absolutely. But I would say that we as a church, where we kind of, if we put those kind of in order, the one where our church is lacking is loving the Lord with our hearts. 
and responding to him and experiencing who God is. And so I would encourage us as we go through this, Spurgeon kind of put it this way. He, he talked about how the Psalms are here as a hymn book. And theologians through the centuries have looked at the Psalms. They're not just to be read occasionally. This is supposed to inform our worship for daily life and both our worship for the gathered body. So I want us to see that the Psalms invite us to connect with this transcendent God. But before we do that, we have to answer a couple of questions. So the first question that I want us to answer this morning is, what are the Psalms? And so maybe if you're just like, yeah, they all kind of look the same, they all kind of read the same, or maybe you're just not super familiar with them. Uh, the first thing that Psalms are, they're songs of, and prayers of praise. They're songs and prayers of praise. Now, the word psalm, we get that in the Greek, the word is actually samoi. Everybody say samoi. Yeah, that's not even as hard as transcendent. So that's only like a $2 theological word. But in the Greek, it's samoy. That's where we get the word. In the Hebrew, the word is halel. Everybody say halel. Yeah, so that word halel, not halal, which is actually an Arabic word, by the way. People are like, hey, is halal and hallelujah, is that kind of the same thing? No, halal, if you've seen like halal food, uh, that's Islamic, and it comes from uh, the Arabic language, but that actually means permissive. A little bit different. Sounds really similar, okay? But the word in Hebrew is halal, and that means to praise. It means to make much of. It means to talk about how awesome something is. It means to shine a light on. It also means to act insane, it means, like, this shouldn't make sense in my mind. Like, my response to this should be just overjoyed. <laughs> so when we talk about hallel, that's where we, the word psalm comes from. Also the word hallelujah. So when you see the word hallelujah, the root of that is hallel, to, to praise, to make much of something. It's like, okay, what about the end of hallelujah? Yah is the beginning of Yahweh, the name of the redeeming God of Israel. The one who created the world. So hallelujah means to praise the Lord. And so when we look in a second at Psalm 113, it begins with praise the Lord. That word right there is hallelujah, hallel, to praise, to psalm, to sing songs. So psalms are songs and prayers of praise, to praise. They're also a, it's a wide range of collection of, of writings. It was written over hundreds of years. Um, and it's, when you read the psalms, they can be read individually, but understand oftentimes they're grouped together by theme or around a festival, uh, but they're written all over the place. And as you read the Psalms, it's got the longest chapter in the Bible. Anybody know what chapter is the longest one in the Bible? Psalm 119. Okay, that, that one's relatively easy, especially for the middle section. Okay, okay, side sections. Uh, what is the shortest chapter in the Bible? What you got? Oh, <laughs> shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, yeah. But the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117, just two chapters before 119. So you have right there within three chapters, you have the shortest chapter in the Bible, you have the longest chapter in the Bible. There's 150 Psalms. It's this huge collection. But not only is it a big collection of a variety of writings, but it's also a, a variety of authors. And so some of those authors, you probably have heard of them, of Moses, of David, Asaph. There are some psalms that are anonymous. Uh, there's one psalm. It's written by a guy named like Herman the Ezraite, and he just writes one. 
He's like a one-hit wonder, but he made it into the Bible. There's some Psalms when it's like a hip-hop collaboration. It's like this guy and the sons of David, they wrote this Psalm. So it's kind of all over. Some of it's just the, the sons of this. It's like the Partridge family. It's, it's all over. So the Psalms, it's written by a variety of authors over a long time period, but then they were collected into 150 Psalms. Not only was it written a long time, a bunch of different authors, but there's a variety of genres. So there's a variety of genres. I put these up on the screen. If you want to see these, I'll talk about them real quickly. Anybody know what the, the, the most notable genre of Psalms is? It has the most. It's one of these up here. Anybody know which one? I feel like I heard eight different things. So, yeah, there's only seven, but I feel like I heard eight. So... The Psalm of Lament is the most popular one. There are more Psalms of Lament than any other Psalm genre. That means the number one song style that we have in the scriptures is emo, okay? So some of you are like, oh man, not the late 90s again, but that's where we are, okay? So there are more of those than any other Psalm. The, the Psalms of Lament are basically saying, I'm sorry to God. And some of those could be individual Psalms of Lament. Some could be communal. There's also, uh, some of y'all maybe have heard of imprecatory Psalms. That falls under Lament. Imprecatory is basically saying, God, I was hurt by these folks. Can you go hurt them and make it hurt even worse than what they hurt me? That's an imprecatory Psalm. You're like, how is that in the Bible? I'm not sure. I'm just preaching the other ones. So, uh, But those are Psalms of Lament. There are Psalms of Thanksgiving, normally for something that God has done tangibly. So it could be, thank you, God, for giving us a victory in a battle. Thank you for grain. Thank you for rain. Thank you for something spiritual that you've done for us. Psalms of praise. Psalms of praise always relate directly to the character and nature of God. And we're going to be looking at one of those this morning. There are Psalms of salvation history. These tell a story about, here's what God has done for us. Usually they point back to being freed from slavery in Egypt. And so they point back and they're like, man, this is what God has done through history. If you're a country music fan, like real country music, not like the modern stuff, these are stories of what God has done. So those are your, if you like country music, those are the songs for you. They tell a really good story. Here's what God has done. There, there are psalms of public celebration, uh, and this would be, uh, where a new king is enthroned. He's put up on high. This is uh, time to celebrate. And then there are psalms of ascent, which is what the Israelites would sing and read as they entered into the temple. These are songs, psalms of ascent. There are multiple genres. The one I don't have up here, psalms of wisdom. There are psalms of wisdom. And a psalm of wisdom is basically instruction for living. It sounds similar to a proverb we have psalms of wisdom in our daily lives. Kids, y'all can help me on this one, okay? You finish, you finish the song. Clean up, clean up. Clean up, clean up. Yeah, that was decent, okay? But that's a, that's a psalm of wisdom. It's instruction for living. This is how we live life. Here's, so we just sang, maybe that's like a modern song. I don't know, but that's a, that's a psalm for living. When we look at these, I think sometimes I read the Psalms kind of the way that if I'm riding on the road with my family, that my wife changes the radio. And her brother does this if you're sitting watching TV with him. Maybe some of y'all are like this. All you're doing is hitting seek the whole time, right? And then you find a song, and she's like, oh, I love this song. And she'll sing it for about 10 seconds, and then boom, on to the next one. And I'm like, you said you love this song. Just let the song finish. She's like, ah, yeah, I don't know. I want to listen to something else. And boom, we could be riding from our house to like Ingalls. 
which is like a quarter of a mile. And we, we'll listen to 55 songs on the way there. It's just like boom, 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 boom. Her brother's the same way. Like he's, he's sitting there with the remote. And it's like, oh, I like this movie. Let's watch this for a second. And then boom, it's gone. I'm like, now we're back to the Braves game. And now we're back to Dumb and Dumber. And now we're, now we're over here watching, you know, CSI, something else. It's just, it's all over the place. But as you read the Psalms, understand that it's meant to be read continuously. Read that psalm in its context and look around at the other psalms. Maybe these psalms are telling a story, and that might mean you need to understand how the psalms are written a little bit more. So Psalm chapter 113, go there with me if you would. Here's a, here's a quote from Tim Keller, and he talked about the purpose of the psalms. This is up on the screen. Um, he said this, the psalms were the divinely inspired hymn book for the public worship of God in ancient Israel. Because psalms were not simply read but sung, they penetrated the minds and imaginations of the people as only music can do. They so saturated the heart and imagination of the average person that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was only natural that the crowd would spontaneously greet him by reciting a line from a psalm. All theologians and leaders of the church have believed that the psalms should be used and reused in every Christian's daily private approach to God and in public worship. We are not simply to read the Psalms. We are to be immersed in them so that they profoundly shape how we relate to God. The Psalms are the divinely ordained way to learn devotion to our God. So we've answered the question, what are the Psalms? The next question that I want us to answer this morning is, why do we need the Psalms? So if you have a Bible, Psalm chapter 113, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to go back and break it down just a little bit. Psalm chapter 113, it says this, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Why do we need the Psalms? First of all, let's go back and look at this. The first three verses talk about how we are to worship. We need the Psalms to help us inform our worship. Look at the beginning with me. He says, praise the Lord. Again, if you look at the Hebrew, that right there is hallelujah. In fact, some translations, some more literal translations, have the word hallelujah. Maybe yours does. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise who? Oh, servants of the Lord. He's speaking about priests who are leading the people in worship, but he's saying, you're not slaves anymore to Pharaoh. Now you're servants of the Lord God. That's important because if we just simply read over that, it's just like, oh, yeah, servants of God. That's everybody. But that means something really specific for these folks. We have to read these carefully. He says, praise the name of the Lord. Now, whenever you see, and we talk about this sometimes, whenever you see the word Lord in all caps right there, that means in the Hebrew, the word is actually Yahweh. Yahweh. So as it says Lord, understand they're talking about not just a Lord, not just a master, not just a God, not just the Lord of a house or an area. They're talking about the one true and only God, Yahweh. He says, but praise the name of the Lord. Now in the Near East, uh, 
someone's name, you're basically saying this encapsulates that person's character. This is that person's history. There's a lot to be said about a name. You ask about the, the meaning of a name. Why did, why did they pick that name? What does that mean? You have a family name, your last name. That's important. There's a lot that's wrapped up in the name. He says, here, praise, not just praise the Lord, praise every aspect, every character trait. Praise the name of the Lord. Verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth. And how long? Forevermore. So not just, hey, thank you, God, for bringing us out of captivity, out of slavery, but forevermore. And we see this reverberated until the pages of Revelation at the very end. We're going to be praising the name of the Lord forevermore. From when? Verse 3. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So he's going to be praised forevermore from the time the sun comes up in the morning. And what the author here is saying, David, he says, When the sun rises, be reminded to praise the name of the Lord. When the sun goes down as you're laying in bed, be reminded to praise the name of the Lord. The sun rises in the east, sets in the... I'm directionally challenged. So if you said north and south, I would have said, all right, I'm just going to repeat that after you. He's he's saying it rises in the east. It covers the west. The name of the Lord is to be praised everywhere at all times. He is above all things. The Psalms inform us of how we are to worship. Secondly, the Psalms inform us of the right view of God. Look at verse number four with me. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. The nations around them had idols and little g, false gods. The psalmist is saying, our God is higher than that. There is nothing higher than God. And when we think about God dwelling in the heavens, he's saying, yeah, God is there, but he's also bigger than that. He looks down at the heavens. So not only does God dwell there in the heavens, but he actually also looks down from the heavens. God is bigger than that. He's saying, this is a transcendent, a huge view of God. It informs how we sing to him, how we approach his word. As we sing about and as we talk about and ponder who God is and what he has done for us, something that's transcendent does not, okay, I did that. Done for the week, I did something transcendent. Awesome. What's my daily transcendence? You know, we call it devotions or quiet times. All right, that was transcendent. Amen. Let it be. No, something transcendent. You're like, man, this is earth-shaking. This is rattling the way that I'm responding to God. Again, it's not just a a propositional mind task. This is from our hearts. And when we see and understand better theology, which is just the study of God, knowing who he is and what he has done, our response should be to be falling flat on the ground. You're like, well, why are we not laying on the ground? I don't know. Because what we see is that when the Spirit of God shows up, when the presence of God shows up all throughout the Scriptures, it's folks' responses, not to grab one more sip of coffee, uh, but is to be awed, to be floored by Him. We even see Moses, and, and God, Moses says, God, I want to see your face. God's like, you can't handle this. He says, let me shove you in the crack in this rock, and don't look at me. 
He sees the back of God as he walks by, and Moses comes down with a nuclear halo around his head because he happened to experience the back of God's presence. And his face shone for days. So when we see and understand the presence and the character of this transcending God, what is our response? Is it, oh, well, that is interesting. Let me write that down somewhere and never look at it again. Or is it worship? Is it sacrifice? Does that change the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we spend our time, where we move, the people that we talk to, the way we talk to people? Our priorities, our values, does it change our culture? Does it change the way that we parent, the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time, the things that we look at? Because that's the purpose of the Psalms, is to change us and to understand this is who God is. It informs our theology. But then if we keep going, verse number, we can look at verse number five. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? So he's transcendent, but here's where this chapter turns. Not only is he transcendent, but verse number six, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth, and then verse seven, he raises the poor from the dust. And it's like, okay, which poor is he talking about? All of the above. Because you can look at, look at Luke chapter 24, and it says that Christ came for who? For the poor. Who does Jesus tell us to be in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So there's both here. There's the physically poor. There's the spiritually poor. There's the emotionally poor. This should inform our prayer. So why are the Psalms important? It informs our worship. It informs our theology. It informs the way that we pray. Now, the Psalms are kind of like, it's kind of like a Wikipedia page. Uh, and there's just links to everything. And so as you look at these verses right here, verses 7 through 9, these are actually pulled from the prayer of Hannah. If you remember Hannah, uh, she was praying to God in 1 Samuel, and she says, God, please give me a son. I, I can't have one of my own. And God says, I will give you a son. He was Samuel, right? He was a priest. This was part of the prayer that she prayed. And as David is recounting this, he's recalling, here's what God has done. Here's a prayer of Hannah. The other time that we see this is in Luke chapter 1, and it's in Mary's prayer. It's that part of Mary's prayer that we call the Magnificat. And she is praising God for giving her a son whose name was Jesus. And so we have right here kind of this, this linchpin between both of those, saying this is the prayer of Hannah, this is the prayer of Mary. And what is the prayer? He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. Literally, that word right there is trash heap. It's just a, a garbage pile. And they would pile this garbage outside of the city gates. And usually once a week, once a month, they would just light it all on fire and they would burn it. So that's why it's a pile of ashes. If you've ever been to a third world country, uh, we lived in Uganda for a minute. And as you go down the road, even at our house, we had a, a garbage pile. And we had to burn the trash a decent bit. But then even after it was burned, these kids would come by and try to find used batteries out of the trash heap. And that was like a treasure to them. That, that's just the way that they lived. Now, they had nothing to put the battery in. They didn't even know what it was. They didn't speak English. They didn't know it said Duracell on it. They didn't go to school. Like, that's third world. They live on these trash heaps. They are the poorest of the poor. And it says here that God doesn't just look down, but he enters the life of those who are the poorest of the poor from the dust from the trash heap. He lifts the needy. And what does he do with them? He makes them to sit with princes. Now, 
this is probably a little more than you wanted to know. But, but these verbs right here in the Hebrew are called hifil verbs. Everybody say hifil. Nice. You'll never need that again in your life. Probably not even on Jeopardy. But it's, uh, it's spelled H-I-P-H-I-L. Those are the kind of verbs these are. It's not just a person doing an action. These, this is a person, God, doing an action on behalf of someone else. So he's not saying, hey, you go become a prince and you go do this. He's not just ordering these things. He's making these things to happen because of his good favor, because of his will, because of his power. All throughout this chapter, that's all we see are these hitfield verbs. And so as he makes those who are needed to sit with princes, he's saying, I'm going to raise you from this place and set you in this place. Some of us, we probably struggle with prayer. You ever struggle with praying? I was talking to a guy a couple weeks ago. He said, man, I just... Uh, or this past week, he said, I, I struggle to pray. I feel like I'm talking to myself sometimes. I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling in my room. Anybody ever been there? Or maybe you're just like, man, it, it's going to happen, so what's the point of praying? You know, I, I was talking to somebody within the past 24 hours, and they said, I'm praying for Scott and Laura Beth. I just don't know what else to pray. And, and we reach that point sometimes, don't we? Like, we, we get there, and I would say, for us, Prayer is difficult. It can be tedious. That's why in the Psalms, we have the prayers of other people to encourage us. God, our transcendent creator, wants to hear from you. Whether you're incredibly happy, like Mary, you're saying, man, praise the Lord for giving me a child. Or if you're like Hannah, who is incredibly depressed, and you're saying, why is this happening to me? The Psalms inform our prayer. The last thing that we see here, if you look at verse number 9, the Psalms inform our emotions. He gives the barren woman a home, making her a joyous mother. Now, David could have written this and said, he makes her a mother. Now, shouldn't she be happy? Like, isn't that implied in this? She's a mother, all right? Like, information, proposition, like we're done. No, he says, she's a joyous mother, the Psalms should stir our emotions. You talk about the word motive, what motivates you. It's the same word for emotions, whatever is in the heart. That's what motivates you. Oftentimes we sit and we just analyze, uh, what's the best decision? Let me write a pros and cons list. Nothing wrong with that. I love pros and cons lists. But sometimes we have to understand, what is the motivation for me making this decision? That motivation, that motive comes from your emotions. It comes from your heart. In our Western enlightened world, we often don't like emotions because we can't figure them out. We've gone from, a, from an information age to this godless age because we can't really figure God out. What did the Time Magazine article say several years ago, back in the 60s? God is dead. And that's because it's like, hey, let's try to analyze everything, and science couldn't figure God out, so we guess God is dead. The, the same is true for a lot of us. We want to say emotions are dead. Man, just grow up. Act like a man. Rub some dirt on it, you know. Walk it off. <laughs> but that's not what God says. In his word in the Psalms, he says, man, sit. Understand what's happening on the inside of you. But also understand that God is good. So we have the emotions here. They, the, our emotions, especially in verse number 9, I think he closes this chapter out on purpose with this, but our emotions help us to know and experience God. So what are the Psalms? We've answered that. Why do we need the Psalms? To help inform our worship, our theology, 
our prayer and our emotions to have right emotions. Here's the last thing I want us to see this morning. As we look at this chapter and as we look at every other psalm in the next several weeks, is that the psalms are about Jesus. The psalms point to Jesus. Now, I don't want to say, okay, how do, we, how do we work every single little word? When he says this here, he says seated. Now, does that mean this person is Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God? Well, no, contextually, he's not talking about Jesus right there. He's talking about, you know, we, we can't just like read into every single thing. But big picture, I want us to see that the Psalms point to Jesus. And as we look at Christ's life, we see this, that the Psalms, Christ used the Psalms, and the Psalms informed Christ's life. So we see in, 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 sorry, in Psalm chapter 132 that it talks about David. I put these references up here so you can look at these Psalms up if you want to later. Take a picture of it. I can send it to you. But Psalm chapter 132 talks about how Jesus Christ is going to come from David. And all of these, by the way, have references in the New Testament also, but I couldn't put them on the screen. I didn't have enough space. But Psalm 132 talks about how Christ is coming from David. Psalm chapter 91 talks about Christ's temptation. And in fact, uh, in Matthew 4, when Satan comes at Christ, what does Satan do? He quotes the Psalms. And what does Jesus say to Satan? Hey, I'm glad you know that with your mind, but you're actually taking that out of context because that points to me. So Jesus uses the Psalms right back on Satan. Jesus used the Psalms in his teaching in, in chapter 110. When Christ was rejected by Judas, he used the Psalm in Psalm chapter 118. Jesus was betrayed, and we see this prophesied in Psalm chapter 41. You can look at Psalm chapter 22, which was written hundreds of years before Christ came along. But we see there everything foreshadowing Christ in his suffering of the crucifixion before, by the way, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented by the Romans. Psalm chapter 22 was talking about Christ's crucifixion. In chapter 22, we see that Christ was forsaken. And as Christ was forsaken on the cross... What does Jesus do? He cries out from Psalm chapter 22 to the Father on our behalf. Jesus prays the Psalms for us as he is dying. We see that Jesus' death is foretold in Psalm chapter 31 and verse number 5. Again, centuries before he's even born, his death is foretold. But then his resurrection is spoken of in Psalm chapter 16. The Psalms are all about Jesus God desires to connect with you from the Psalms. That's what I want us to see. If you forget the breakdown of Psalm chapter 113, that's okay. Do not forget this. God wants to connect with you from the Psalms. The same God who is above time, we saw that in verse number two. The same God who is above all space and place in verse number three. The God who is above all power and earthly authority in verse number four. He's both transcendent and he's imminent. He's above all of those things, yet he stoops to those who are needy, to those who are poor, to those who are on the ash heap. He is transcendent, and he is an eminent God. He's the God who spoke things into creation, yet he wants to be with his people. And we understand and know the greatness of God because of how he cares for the ungreat. We understand and know the greatness of God for how he cares for the ungreat. Jesus Christ proved his greatness by becoming 
small himself. That's the beauty of God's greatness, is that Jesus Christ set aside all of his greatness, and he became small. It's the infinitely high becoming surprisingly low. It's the unfathomably huge becoming infinitesimally small. It's the mightiest and strongest that we can imagine becoming weaker than almost any of us. The same God who hung the stars in the sky is the God who wants to hear from you and he wants to be with you. He wants to have life with you. He wants you to experience him. Now, for some of us, that's really scary. Some of you are like, okay, what's my first step? I would say, read the Psalms. Spend time with the author of the Psalms. Read them. But you know why it's scary for us? It's because our view of God is really safe. Our relationship with God is really safe. The reason I know that is because most of it, our relationship with God is based on information rather than heart transformation. As we read the Psalms, may our worship and our theology and our prayer and our emotions and the way that we live our lives be stirred. We've talked about the Passover about 450 years before Psalm 113 was written. There's a guy named Moses, and he led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. They were slaves to Pharaoh. Most of us know these stories. They were slaves to Pharaoh. And what God did in the Passover is he reached down to those who were literally in the ash heap, to these slaves who had been in slavery for 400 years, and he reached down and says, I want to raise you up, and I want to make you princes, and I want to give you your own land. He reached down because of his good grace and his mercy, and he redeemed them. He didn't just say, okay, let me make this happen. No, he came down there with them. He said, I want to give you your own land. I want to give you this promised land. Now, having the land was really nice, but the best part of having this promised land, God didn't say, hey, just go over into this land. He said, I want to give you the promised land, and then I'm going to come and dwell among you. I'm going to make my home among you, my people, in my promised land. I'm not just transcendent, but I'm also imminent. I'm right here, present with you. But here's the beautiful part. It's not just that God came down to dwell, and at the Passover they celebrated that. But the best part for us today in 2021 is that one day, as Jesus Christ says, he is making a home for us, and we get to go dwell in his land. This gives us new understanding of Psalm 113. Here's why. Because Psalm 113 is the first of six psalms that the Jews would sing and recite as they celebrated Passover. Psalm 113 is the first, as they sat and enjoyed the Passover meal, they would sing Psalm 113 together, sitting around the table. So as Jesus is about to go to the cross and be crucified for us, we know that weekend is called Passover weekend. That's when the Jews were celebrating. That's why everybody was in town the week before when they're singing Hosanna. It's because that's the week leading up to Passover. And that Thursday night, as Christ is sitting there at the table with his disciples about to take part in this Passover meal, the first thing they did as they sat at the table was to sing Psalm 113 together. 